and welcome to You Are The Salt, a podcast for Christian female leaders and entrepreneurs. Whether you're starting out in your business or career, already on that path and that journey, I believe this podcast can be the source of encouragement you have been looking for. With your host, as always, Louis Luaya. This episode is for the current and aspiring founders and CEOs. Today's guest is Dr. Chan Abrahams. He is a business thought leader, social entrepreneur, author, broadcaster, church planter, and pastor. He has influenced and inspired thousands of individuals and organizations to find the creative potential for life in all of its fullness. He's the founder of an organization called Luminous and was the CEO of that organization for 18 years. He'll be telling us about the realities of being a Christian CEO. Louis, hi, it's uh, great to be here and uh, uh, to be part of this tremendous enterprise that you've set up to inspire and encourage women. Yes. Thank you so much for coming on. And I'm really excited to hear about what you've got to say um, about this topic. Um, so I wanted to kind of take us all the way back to when you were at university and what that was like and kind of talk us all the way up from there to you becoming CEO and founding your own company. Well, you're asking for a very long story in an extremely short period of time. (laughs) But uh, perhaps the important thing for your listeners is to know that I actually didn't go to university. Uh, My father died when I was still in my mid-teens. And although I I was headed for Cambridge, I decided to leave school early and to start work. So I did all of my qualifications the hard way, which is while I was working. Uh, so I have had a long career in a variety of different organizations, uh, partly in local government and then partly in the, um, in the non-profit as well as commercial sectors. And I suppose to the, what might help listeners m- most of all is to know that whatever it is you're doing, whether you're at university or not, is to have a sense of where do you want to go? Uh, have some sense of your goal in life. Now, when you're 17, 18, 19, or even 25, you may not be clear about that. But the best way to know the direction of your life is to ask yourself, what's the passion in your heart? What really gets you out of bed in the morning? And for me, the driving force always was not that I wanted to make a lot of money, although there's nothing wrong with that, but I really wanted to help people and I wanted to make a difference in the world and have an impact. In fact, that idea of having the greatest possible impact that my life could have for the benefit of others has probably always been the driving force. And that has enabled me then to interpret whatever job I I do so that I always come back to that true north. Hmm. Okay. That's so interesting. I just, I never knew that, um, yeah, I never knew that part of your story that your dad passed away and that that kind of caused you to almost grow up really quickly. Would you say that? Yes. I, and I think the the other perhaps interesting point for, for everybody, uh, regardless of their background here, is that I, I'm a, a person of colour. 
I'm the youngest, I'm the seventh child in uh, an immigrant family. Now, I come from, it was called Ceylon, but it's now called Sri Lanka. It's a beautiful country. Uh, and in fact, they say that when God sent Adam out of the Garden of Eden, he sent him to the most beautiful place on earth, which was Ceylon. And coming to this country and being immigrants here was a challenge. In fact, we were, we'd come at the time that racism was at its peak. Yeah. So to deal with all of those issues and to be successful, I think is a story worth sharing and worth encouraging people with. And so not, not only did we have to deal with the fact that we were strangers in a strange land to some degree, but we spoke English and Ceylon had been part of the old British Empire. Mm. But really, I think what pulled us along was we never paid any attention to the issues of race or prejudice. Uh, and we were growing up in a Christian home. And that made all of the, all the difference because our parents prayed with us. And there was always that sense of focus. Well, what is the most important thing? Family, love, uh, obedience, uh, discipline. Although there were four boys and we were extremely naughty. And my father had a cane and he used it. Oh, wow. uh, and, uh, and so I don't think there's any, any problem with uh, using um, a firm hand and discipline with children. Not that I ever did that to my own kids. But I suppose he needed to with the four of us. So, yes, that's part of my story. And the, uh, as I said to you, I, I took qualifications as I went along. Mm -hmm. But my priority always was to try and be in work where I could make the biggest difference. I learned a lot on the job. Often I was uh, almost entirely in situations where it's a bit like going into the swimming pool at the deep end jumping in and then surfacing. So mm -hmm. I learned a great deal along the way and uh, I, I got some very senior positions both in London and outside. I dealt with some very problematic uh, situations uh, when there were riots in London, when there were huge race problems, uh, when uh, there were big, big problems between especially the black community and the police. Mm -hmm. Uh, you, you'll read about this now in the history books, but I was there right in the center of it at the time mm. and um, creating an environment in which people could coexist and learn how to be uh, good neighbors to each other and a whole range of other things, giving hope to the poor, actually, because I worked a lot on the very big London housing estates, mm. as well as trying to train professionals to be more effective in the way in which they communicated uh, and to inspire people to just enjoy being at work, which is not part of the British way of life. There's a part of the British disease, I'm afraid, is give me the weekends, give me the holidays, give me as short working hours as possible, and I'll be happy. Just wishing to be where you're not, I guess. Is a sense yeah, of yeah, yeah, that's right. And yet we spend most of our time at work, mm. and therefore it's important that we enjoy rather than endure our jobs otherwise it becomes a monday to friday kind of dying yes you said a lot um and i kind of want to go back to what you said about racism and kind of um dealing with adversity i guess you can make it general um i really like that point because obviously we as my listeners are women mostly and of some of us are people of color, 
but I like the fact that you were able to still do really well despite everything that was happening. So what did you, what were some of the things that you did to help you go through that season of, of it's not really a season, but to go through all the things that happened at that point and, you know, at the height of racism, how, what was your mental state like? How did you get yourself to the point where you were still successful no matter what anybody thought? About? Yeah, those are, those are really great uh, questions to raise and my answer really although it applies to me and I'll try and make it generic I think we need to bear in mind that everyone is wired differently mm -hmm. and uh, just in very broad terms some of your listeners will be uh, more introverted some will be more extrovert some will be rather more sensitive than others some will have lots of natural confidence and optimism. Others will be less confident, more perhaps pessimistic. You know, we human beings have a very wide spectrum and it doesn't matter what the color of our, our skin is, our blood still runs red. And we all share uh, a whole range of psychological and emotional characteristics. My, in my case, um, and I'll give you one example, which is not necessarily to do with race, but it might have been. So as a, um, as a small boy going up to my grammar school years, I was, a, I was a natural leader, but I was also an extremely naughty boy. I was a very I bad behavior. That. I uh, and I got, the, I got the cane at school several times. I went to a, a religious school, a Church of England school. And my leadership qualities were such that I would always lead boys and girls to do very naughty things anyway I was in the final year of school and this was the year when your parents put down the schools they want you to go to and uh, my father had put down a number of really great schools public schools and uh, the, the, the head the deputy headmistress who was my form teacher who did not like me that was very clear in front of the whole class she said to me she said Abraham your father wants you to go to all these good schools, but you will never make it, she said. Mm -hmm. And then she said, but then I suppose all parents think that their ugly ducklings are swans. That, of course, is a reference to the fairy story of the ugly duckling. Now, um, that was a, today that would be seen as being child abuse, apart from anything else. Yeah. Uh, but, but my approach I remember this distinctly, you know, the fact that I can remember word for word what she said is an indication that it had quite an imprint on me. But you know, what I think what I did as a, a boy of uh, 10, 11 was to determine that I was not going to go down. So when I went to the new school, I changed completely. I, I, I said I was not going to be naughty. Uh, I was uh, going to do my very best. And I think the one of the, the, perhaps the lessons I learned in life was to be determined not to let anyone else choose your path for you. To, uh, to recognize that although there are horrible things that happen in life, don't let those things stick to you because you can only be imprisoned by the things that people do to you if you allow them to get to your heart and mind. And so uh, one piece of advice I'll give to your listeners is this. The loudest voice that you always hear is not the voice that is outside, it's the voice that's in your head. Mm. 
and you'll hear that voice during the day you'll hear it when you go to bed you'll hear it when you wake up you know it, it's usually it's our self-talk it's the things we're saying to ourselves about ourselves in fact we mm -hmm. it, it happens so much that most people aren't aware of that voice but as soon as you become aware of it and i'd, I'd encourage people to do that and so i mean it could be about and let's just take a very popular issue appearance especially mm -hmm. for women appearance weight thing. size all of those things because the media constantly push out a range of body types and visual images about do you know if you want to be successful you've got to look like this person and so a lot of women are going around with these mental images and this self-talk and mm -hmm. the consequence is perhaps they don't even want to really look in their mirrors or if they look in their mirrors they want to look like someone else they don't want to be who they are and mm -hmm. my advice to the women listening uh, to primarily women I think who listen to your brilliant program is start by stopping that voice you know turn that podcast off mm -hmm. and start a new podcast about who you really are now if you are a believer in Jesus the Bible is full of stuff about who you really are but even if you're not a believer the, the reality is that you are unique when you were created God threw the mold away there can never ever be another person like you your DNA is unique to yourself your fingerprints are unique to you you are the only person of your kind in the universe celebrate it and then by all means look at improving yourself in whatever way you can but don't ever don't ever say uh, do things which put yourself down because mm -hmm. you were never meant to be that you were meant to be a queen a princess a king a yeah. prince and yeah. that's how that's how God sees you that's so interesting that you say that because um, I remember there was a time when I had I had this dream where I felt like God was almost like playing my thoughts out loud so I could hear you know like the thoughts that you have that you don't you're not conscious of kind of like what you're talking about um, that was kind of played to me on a loud scale and it got me to think, wow, Louis, you need to change the way that you think. So it's actually really interesting that you say that because I guess we play a script in our mind and that script kind of influences how we act, what we do, what we say, the things that we think we can actually achieve in life, the things that we think we can't. So uh, yeah, that's a very, that's a very, very good point. Um, yeah, so. Can I add something to that then just to yeah. build on what you're saying? which might be helpful. So I mentioned a teacher mm -hmm. and so much of that, uh, it's a good word you use, so much of that script, which is uh, in our minds, is established from a very early age. Uh, in, mm -hmm. in fact, it's, I think neuroscience is revealing more and more that it starts really almost from the time of conception. It, it's in the womb, things that happen uh, right before we, re we are even born, then in our early formative years with parents, with uh, siblings, and then with other significant people, especially like teachers. And a great teacher can have a wonderful influence on a child's life in terms mm -hmm. of their character, their personality, their aspirations. Yeah. But uh, teachers who themselves may have been, uh, may have suffered, 
can be really problematic. You know, they say hurt people hurt people. Yeah. And that is played out again and again and again. And in fact, one of the things I was determined to do in business was I was going to break the cycle of bad leadership, which is why I started Leadership International, because most leaders have learned terrible practices. Uh, and that, that's especially true in the West, but it's true all over the world. And we need a new paradigm of leadership. And the way to do that, uh, especially for some of your listeners who aspire to leadership, is to start by changing the way we think about ourselves and also break the rotten models of leadership that we've seen, some of which may be in parenting. And going back to the script in our minds, check out what your parents told you. And what, because sometimes parents can have unrealistic expectations of their children. They can place enormous burdens upon their kids, perhaps because of their own unfulfilled ambitions or aspirations, or perhaps because they themselves are competing with other people. Uh, yeah. The old phrase used to be trying to keep up with the Joneses. And it's, we obviously, clearly, we must respect our parents, but we also need to be clear where the things that they have done, perhaps unwittingly, have created obstacles for us as we go through life. Okay, so what were like some of the things that you you started to work on when you thought, okay, I want to be a leader. I want to improve my life. You said that you, when you went to the school, you changed slightly. Like what was the main things that you changed about yourself or improved about yourself? In, in that regard, the, it, it was really in terms of my behavior. Mm -hmm. So I, and it really, it wasn't, it wasn't that difficult at all, which reveals that managing a person's behavior is within the, uh, the range of our possibilities. The other thing that happened to me in my um, uh, early teens was that I became a committed Christian. And so having a profound spiritual experience at the age of 14 and a half, that really was the, the key transformation because it gave me the essential set of priorities, the direction in life, the compass for living, that has never left me because that formed my, my real passions. I believe what, what God does is he uses the things that are part of our makeup and then he pours in uh, tremendous divine resources. So we all have innate gifts. None of us is without gifts or talents. Mm -hmm. We may not have the same gifts and talents as somebody else, but what we have is unique to ourselves. And the important thing is to use those things that we have and to use them for the benefit of others. And that, I think, was the key transformation in my life. Up to the point that I became a committed Christian, I would say my life was just like anyone else's in that I, I wasn't a bad person, a terribly bad person. But in essence, my life was focused on myself. Mm. Becoming a follower of Jesus really meant that I was, I was now fundamentally interested in the benefit of others. And I think that has been the driving passion of my leadership all, all the time, that being a leader is about being a bridge over which other people can walk to achieve their greatest potential. My job as a leader 
is to create opportunities, to create possibilities, to give people a sense of perspective. Someone has said the first task of the leader is to keep hope alive. So for example, in this time of terrible disease across the world, the most important thing is for leaders to inspire people with a sense of hope. Now that doesn't mean to say we don't give people bad news or the truth, but it means that we should we should come at everything from a perspective that we are going to win this thing. We're going to beat it and we're going to do it together, you know, as a team. Together, everyone achieves more. That's an acronym for team. Okay. And so those are the kinds of principles that uh, uh, have really guided me in my leadership. And they, they, they formed the foundation for everything that I ever did. It was primarily a commitment to God and then a mm-hmm. commitment to other people. To other people. Okay, so some people feel like you have to be absolutely incredibly smart to to be a CEO. Like you have to be, uh, you have to have supernatural powers in a way to be a CEO and to do it well. So to kind of break down what you used to do when you were CEO, what are some of the things that were helpful for you to get to be a successful CEO? Because obviously you did that for 18 years. So you know a lot and you've had a lot of experience. What were some of the key things that enabled you to lead successful. You mentioned um, the fact that you thought about people and you were being the bridge and also having God guide you. But I guess, were there any, did you have to be good at maths? Were there some things that you needed to, yeah, was there any subjects that you needed to hone for you to get to that point? I don't know if that makes sense. Well, That's a long question. It, it does, it does. And, and um, you'll, yeah. have to come, you'll have to come to a series of 25 lectures actually to, to get the depth of that. But, yeah. so, there are, but try, to try and bring it down to, um, to a, a small number of issues. So the earlier conversation really was, I suppose you would, you would describe it as the inner life of yeah. the person who is the leader. Um, and there's a whole range of factors around that. So let's park that for a minute. Then there are issues around skills and knowledge. So what uh, you would, we would broadly call different competencies. Yes. In terms of knowledge, to be the, uh, the primary leader, whatever that job is called, director, senior executive, chief executive, in any business, requires a degree of knowledge about the business itself, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're in a highly technical environment, if you're in a scientific environment, for example, you do need to, in order to be the chief executive in a, of a series of laboratories, you'd have to have some awareness of the nature of the business. Mm-hmm. However, it is possible to be the chief executive of uh, a business or different types of businesses without necessarily having the background. And I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. So in, in setting up the Luminous business, I had to raise 100 million pounds. And I ended up raising 300 million. Now, I'd never worked in that kind of environment. uh, And I paid 65 million pounds to buy eight and a half thousand homes from the local authority. That's amazing. First of all, that's a great achievement. (laughs) And I'd never, but I'd never worked with bankers. They use a different, they actually speak a different language. It's Mm -hmm. not English at all. And uh, when I met a dozen bankers and I took them around to show them the nature of the business proposition. 
I quickly realized that they were speaking about things that I did not know about. I didn't understand. Now, I didn't tell them that I didn't understand because they were going to be lending money to the company that hadn't been formed. But I was the only person that they had there. Then they had to have confidence in me. Yeah. So one of the skills that a, uh, a chief executive must have is the ability to inspire confidence in other people. So, um, you, you certainly you've one. got to have a degree of knowledge. You've got to have an awareness of the subject. Uh, and because I was going to be borrowing money for property and I did understand property, I was able to talk to them with authority about the nature of the property issues, property business. But most importantly, I was able to look them in the eye and even though they used words that I honestly did not understand, I yeah. didn't flinch. I just looked yeah. them straight and uh, I made a mental note that when I'd said goodbye to them, I needed to find out more about what these strange words meant. So um, being confident, being able to display confidence, being having an investigative and curious mind, uh, and being willing to ask questions. So when you're at the top of an organization, like I was, it doesn't mean to say you have all knowledge. I didn't. I employed people from a whole range of professions. And I had no reservation at all about asking people questions about their jobs, about what they did. Um, it, it doesn't demean you as the chief executive. In fact, it's the right way. And because I believe in something called servant leadership, having that appropriate level yes. of humility is really, really important. I'm just learning about and, it now. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, a, I mean, that's part of a, a different discussion, but it is an important skill. So an, an, another key skill is about, well, it's two aspects. It's skills and awareness. It's having an awareness of yourself and having a, an awareness of other people. Now, different, we, we give these things different words nowadays. Neuroscience begins to name them. But in essence, it's, a, it's about having that sense of intelligence, which might be called emotional intelligence, intuition. Uh, and and it's not, that's not gender specific. I, I wouldn't say that men or women are necessarily more gifted in that. We all have to learn uh, how to be aware of other people, of their needs, of their aspirations. We need to be able to read an environment, read a situation. If you're chairing a meeting, often chief executives have to chair a lot of meetings. We need to be able to bring everyone around the table into the discussion mm. to give them a sense of value and worth. So that's about self-awareness and it's about other people awareness. And those are, that's, those are a whole range of skills that need to be cultivated over a period of time. Maturity is another important thing. I don't think you can quickly rise to the top of an organization. You do get very young chief executives, and often that's because of flair and skill at what they're doing and just sheer enthusiasm and entrepreneurship, and that's really great. However, you can't take, you can't replace experience that comes with time because yes. it's only through time that you learn the things that especially the things that went wrong uh, and and to learn from them on the point of time so i've got a question about that so obviously you were ceo for nearly two decades um how did you deal with change because clearly 
technology, there's so many things that change socially. How did you plan and also deal with change? Because obviously if you're planning, things could not turn out the way that you actually envisioned for it to be. How did you go about that? Yeah, that's, that, I mean, that's a brilliant question. And one of the key requirements of any senior leader is to manage change. That's a bit of a cliche now, the management of change. But it's even more important now because uh, information is uh, increasing at such a rate. So the, I think one of the key requirements for a leader is to have an open mind and to be willing himself or herself to change. That's, the, that's important. And so in, uh, in, in marketing terms, it's about rebranding yourself and being willing to change your own personal brand. So um, part of that is about thinking differently. And the, the great thing about the brain is that, as we now know, there's something called neural plasticity. The brain is not fixed. It's not calcified. And uh, we've been given this phenomenal ability to change. We can change, but it has to, there needs to be a, a degree of willingness to do it. So I would say the, in order to change, and certainly make sure that there are people around you who are aware of how things are changing, whether it's to do with information technology or uh, political change or social change or other forms of environmental change. And to, uh, to, to engage with them in an open way, although the, the senior leader has always got to be the person who uh, evaluates risks and asks the question, how will this change benefit the business? Because change for change's sake is not a good thing. You know, there will be people who come up and say, oh, look, here's the greatest thing that's happening in the, in the technological world. And mm -hmm. frankly, it may be a waste of time and money. You may end up a lot of uh, investing a lot of time and resource taking on a superb technological um, innovation only to find it's not suitable for you. Mm. So you need to have an open mind, but also uh, need to, I would say a, a key competence of a chief executive is critical evaluation, being able to assess and analyze the potential effectiveness, ramifications, and uh, risks and rewards of any particular uh, situation. Now, the individual may not be able to do all of that work because there's quite a lot there, but they need to know the questions to ask. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that you said that you need to know the questions to ask because I guess. Some people feel like when I get to that point, I need to know everything. I need to know the answers. I need to be able to, people need to look to me. But I think being able to, yeah, be humble and know that you're a human being and the way that you get information is actually to ask the right questions is actually really key. Um, I have another question. There was a question that I wanted to ask when you said um, some people might come to you with information and they say this is the best thing to do. Have people ever come to you with a suggestion that, was against your morals um, and how did you deal, deal with that as a Christian? Um, well I, I think you perhaps the way to, <laughs> to answer that question is do you think I'm the sort of person that people will come to 
and present anything that's against my morals. The answer is no. <laughs> that's what that doesn't happen. It <laughs> doesn't happen. Yeah. But that doesn't mean to say I um, I have not met people who uh, who would have been inclined to go down that road. Yeah. I think because uh, because people knew that I had a particular standing, however they evaluated that, mm -hmm. uh, people, they might have thought I was religious yeah. or um, a church person, you know, whatever, whatever it was, but they saw the success of our business <clears throat> and they would have, people talk about people, I mean, they saw me as being, for want of a better word, in fact, they, they, the media used this term, I, they saw me as, as a celebrity, but, but, but also an enigma because mm -hmm. the, the media and the industry I was working in was particularly anti-faith and uh, anti-Christian. So mm -hmm. they, would, they tried at every attempt to um, criticize or ridicule. In fact, the regulator in the industry that I worked was very anti-Christian as well. So um, another way to look at this is to say, well, how do you deal with situations where either way people are bringing you suggestions which are against your morals or your standing or where people are particularly envious, jealous, yeah. or, or have it in for you. And I would say to all of your listeners in every one of those situations, never feel rushed to make a decision about anything. Uh, always go with your heart. So if something doesn't feel right, or it makes you feel uncomfortable, just say, uh, that's uh, something, use the right, whatever words are appropriate in the circumstance, but that's, that's really interesting. Can I just take a little while to think about that? Mm -hmm. Or um, perhaps we can just adjourn that item on the agenda and come back to it because I think I'd like some more information about it, perhaps a little bit more research, a bit more data. So in other words, because I, I recognize that the people who are listening to this might receive instructions from people who are above them in an organization yeah. where they might feel uncomfortable uh, mm -hmm. about saying no. They might even feel threatened uh, as far as their job is concerned. So, so I would say in those situations, look, I, I'm, I'm not so sure about that or I'd I just like to pause. I've, uh, or I've, I've just had some other ideas, and but perhaps I can work on those. So, in other words, you deflect the issue to give yourself time to perhaps go and take advice, um, to talk to some other people. Obviously, if you're a Christian, to go and pray about it, talk to your pastor confidentially, or, or whatever might be appropriate. But never feel that you have to make a decision then and there. Obviously, if you do feel you've got a gun to your head and someone is asking you to do something which is against your principles, then you really have to then say, well, you have to decide what you want to do in that moment. Yeah. You know, are you going to go with them or not? See, in, in, in the organization that I created, and this is unique, um, in t I, I created a moral framework which made it easy for people to do the right thing. So... Um, Part of that meant that as leader, I showed people that, firstly, that I genuinely cared for them. 
I, and I, I wanted to create a no fear, no blame culture. So I wrote that into the values of the organization. Most organizations instill fear in people. Mm. I also wrote into the staff manual that there would be no, at work, there would be no swearing, no obscenity, no, uh, no blasphemy. And one of the reasons I did that was it's not so much from a religious perspective, but language is very powerful. And when people use inappropriate language, offensive language, then it creates an environment for harassment, for intimidation, for discrimination. Now, it, most often that can be uh, sex discrimination, gender discrimination. It's usually women. Historically, it's been women who have suffered at the, at the hands of that. But it can also be people who are from uh, ethnic minorities and from religious minorities. So when people use the name of God in vain, that's very, very offensive to people mm -hmm. of faith. Yeah. And unfortunately, the British, the English language seems to use a great deal. Yeah. And so by, by, by having that in the rule book, and then I created a, a, a kind of a new language, a positive language to add in things like um, be the best, seize the day. So people would, would incorporate that into their language. So what happened was people naturally, just like children do, began to speak more positively. So there was, a, there was always a more optimistic way of doing things. I encourage people every day they got out of bed to say something good is going to happen to me today. Mm. And uh, it, it immediately changed the way people looked at their environment. So those are sorts of things that can actually transform the way in which people uh, do their jobs. Yeah. That is really smart. That's really, I think that's great getting to the core of, getting to the core of, um, I guess the values and kind of thinking of the fact, that's why you're a CEO, thinking of how that will impact the day-to-day -day running of the organizations to the smallest thing that people say. That is, yeah, that's amazing. Um, I wanted to ask another question. So you mentioned, um, actually, just to go back slightly, the reason why I asked that question was because I was speaking to one of my friends and they were saying that, they were speaking about somebody who's very um, accomplished and they're very young. And she was saying that, you know, sometimes you have to kind of cut corners and you have to, to do things that you might not want to do to get to the top. So that's kind of why I asked that question because some people think that you actually have to be maybe a bit, I don't know, I can't think of the, the word, but maybe a bit sleazy to get to the top. But I. I'm a firm believer that you don't need to. And I think there's many people, whether they're Christians or not, that have done it the right way. Um, so I'm glad that you, yeah, you talked about just having your, your standards, sticking to them, buying time, and actually being able to, to stick to what you believe all the way through your career, which is fantastic. Um, what, was, what do you think was the best thing that you learned as CEO outside of people management? What, what did you learn about yourself from that time? That's a very interesting question. Um, I think one of, there are many things mm -hmm. that I learned uh, both about myself and other people. And remember I said at the beginning, one of the things that we need to be is curious and investigative and also have an open mind. Perhaps one thing I would say I can offer here is that the 
the further I progressed in my career and the more I learned, the more I became aware of what I didn't know and I needed to learn. So that, and, and I think that's helpful to potentially to everyone who aspires towards to senior leadership because often people who have a drive to being leaders may be driven by, often are driven by ego. That's a very powerful force. Mm. It isn't entirely wrong, but it is part of who we are. We are as human beings. And so one of the principles of Leadership International, in fact, the first principle that we teach is leadership without ego. Mm. And the, it is something anyway that the Bible teaches us. It doesn't mean to say that we should grovel in the dust. We, you know, we need to know who we are and the capabilities we have. But we always need to be aware of the fact that we are not put on this earth for ourselves. That's what I was saying earlier. Mm. So having, having held firmly to this principle, leadership without ego, it's been for me, um, it's been good for my personal integrity and my own conscience to truly know that while I've got a reasonable sense of what I've achieved and what I do know, and, and I've achieved a lot and I know a lot, but what I've come to know is that is a fraction of what there really is. You know, it's a bit, it's a bit like as small as the earth is in the vastness of the universe. That's how small my achievements are mm -hmm. compared to what others have done. That's how small my knowledge is compared to what others know and what there is to know. That doesn't put me down. It doesn't make me feel weak or helpless, but it just gives me a sense of being grounded in truth and reality. And mm -hmm. I think that is very important because many, many leaders, you see this actually in business, you see it in politics, get to a place of great power and then they lose a sense of who they really are. Um, and that's why in marriages, for example, uh, sometimes people grow apart because mm -hmm. they've, they've got to a certain position in life and they, no longer, they are no longer those people that when they first got together. So, so true. being true to yourself is really, really important. Yeah. It's great that you mentioned that actually. Yeah. How did... So basically, I was speaking to one of my other friends and they were saying, I was speaking, I was telling them that I was going to be speaking to yourself. Um, and they were like, oh, I wonder how being a CEO affected, how that affects private life. Because obviously you don't have enough, you don't have a lot of time, do you? Or do you have a lot of time? What's the life of CEO like? Do you have a lot of time? Do you not have a lot of time? How do you manage that? And also the aspect of growing your faith. How did you ensure that you were still growing in your faith and making time for God as well? Yeah, two, two really brilliant questions. So the, in, in my experience, and I wouldn't recommend this to everyone, but I, because I have always done so much, because I was not only chief executive of Voluminous Group, I, I was running Leadership International. Uh, I've, I've been involved in church ministry and um, involved in various other forms of ministry, voluntary activity. So uh, I would 
as a result of my experience, I, I will probably be encouraging people to find uh, a, a different way of managing their time uh, the, to what I did. Because I can do a lot and have done a lot, you know, I've packed a lot into the day. Uh, I don't necessarily think that's the best way to do it. So that's probably one of the biggest learn lessons I learned, which I would share with other people. Because if we if, if we then deal with your your spiritual life and also your family life, I've always believed that family life is the greatest priority. But when I look back at when my children were young, mm -hmm. I now wish that I could have spent more time mm -hmm. with them than I actually mm -hmm. did. I was always generally, apart from when I was away for conferences, um, I was generally there when they were young to pray with them, to sing with them and, and to be there to see them to bed. That was a real priority. Yeah. But if truth be told, a lot of the time my mind was on, on so many other things. Mm. And I, I would love for people not to do that in the way that I did. I'd love for them to be much more focused on their children. And in terms of um, spiritual life, I... I never mastered um, getting up as you know, like John Wesley did at four or five in the morning <laughs> yeah. in order to spend a lot of time in prayer and meditation. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I am, although I'm not running a corporate organization now, I am as busy as I ever was, yeah. but I'm spending much more time. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm providing consultancy and, and lots of lots of free help to individuals, organizations, churches, doing a lot of yeah. writing and uh, podcasts and videos and stuff like that. Yeah. But I am actually spending much more time reading my Bible in meditation, in reflective yeah. activity than I did in all those years. Mm. So I would say to anybody who is, who is at that top end of the organization, try and mm. carve in some really important downtime where you can get alone with yourself and your thoughts, but also where you can have some really protected time for the people who are important in your life. It's really, really important. Yeah, yeah definitely. Definitely. Um, so I asked, I wanted to ask about your, so we've touched on your spiritual life and things like that. Is there anybody that you were inspired by in the Bible, you know, uh, growing up, obviously you got saved when you were like 14. Was there anything that really spurred you on to become the person that you are now? Um, can be Jesus as well, obviously. <laughs> but was there anybody specifically that you were like, you related to? Because we all kind of have somebody that, a story that we relate to the most, that kind of reflects our life. Yes. Yeah, yeah that's, that's an absolutely... Uh, brilliant question as well actually and uh, there are several characters who I uh, have drawn great inspiration from uh, and they include David, King David, yes. uh, Joseph, uh, Moses and Daniel. I would say those those individuals and, and I'm sure things will move on uh, as we do in our lives but I have identified with David because he suffered a great deal at the hands of others, enormous amount. I mean, he was, he became an outlaw because Saul was jealous of him. I've experienced that. I've experienced mm. people who were leaders over me who just, 
felt so threatened uh, that they caused me a great deal of trouble. And that has helped me to know that I never, ever wanted to treat other people in the way that I was treated. And that's partly why uh, I, within the doctrines of Leadership International, I've, um, I've created a model for leadership which will always release other people. And in doing so, it releases the leader. And uh, uh, so, so David has always been significant. And also David was a, he was a, he was a merciful and compassionate leader. He never took revenge on people. Uh, that's been important to me. Joseph has been important to me because, once again, Joseph was someone who suffered uh, uh, at the hands of others, but also he was a bit careless. He, he really should have kept his mouth shut uh, mm -hmm. when he was younger. But then later on in life, he rose to a position of power, he mm -hmm. and he was faithful to God. And uh, Moses speaks a lot to me because Moses made some dreadful mistakes. Uh, he, made a, he made a huge mistake in murdering someone. Uh, I've not murdered anyone, I just need to <laughs> say that. Uh, and, um, and, I, and I don't get angry either, that's the other thing. But uh, yeah. people in my organization used to used say, I, my, I had various PAs and they said, um, I, we've never seen the chief executive angry. In fact, we've never heard him raise his voice. We've only seen him yeah. lift his eyebrows and that was enough for us. And uh, so I think if you can get to that place, uh, that, that helps people a great deal. But those, those are the guys. Mm -hmm. And Moses, the, the great thing about Moses is that God redeemed his position and he brought him back. And mm -hmm. so uh, I find it great, very encouraging that whatever has happened in our lives, God can bring us back to enable us to serve him. And the consequence is I've always pre been prepared to give people second chances. I rarely sacked people, actually. Yeah. In fact, I never, ever sacked anyone, uh, although mm. people were dismissed in the organization. But the people who were, who were closest to me, senior people, I, I made great allowances for them. Mm -hmm. And very often, they never knew the allowances that I did make for them. I made mm. sacrifices to cover their wrongdoing mm. so that I could protect them, especially those who had small children. And... Mm. Um, because I, I, I did not want to see them uh, losing their job and then having a, um, uh, a horrible mark on their character record. And most of those people would never know what I did to save their situation. In fact, they were probably quite angry about things that I did. In one case, I, I restructured the organization, moved a senior director out of his position to another position. Mm -hmm. And he probably thought I was being really nasty, but I was doing that to save him. Wow. Yeah. There's something that you mentioned. You mentioned um, having people above you that were jealous of you. How did you deal with jealousy? Did you just get on with your job or how did you go about that? Well, to begin with, I was, ne I was not aware of it. Mm. Uh, I, I, I just thought people being horrible to me. Um, mm. And uh, most often what people did was to speak behind my back. Never, never once did anyone uh, either in a work or actually in a church situation have the courage to come and speak to me directly. Usually what mm -hmm. they did was to speak behind my back. And in some cases, um, in some organizations, they, they actually tried to restructure parts of the organization because especially when I was in senior roles, not, not my, not the most recent one. Mm -hmm. um, and 
in those cases, it, it is difficult because you have to deal with the emotions of rejection, uh, the feelings of rejection, and also to deal with what is uh, uh, really amounts to hatred. And I've experienced, mm. I've experienced intense hatred, uh, in, especially actually, oddly enough, when I became chief executive, not from my own staff, but from external organizations because of the extraordinary success that we had. Mm -hmm. And also because people knew I was a Christian. And the, uh, in, in some respects, I think you just have to get on with the job. You have to keep focused on what you're doing. You do have to make sure it doesn't get, get to you. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it's important, whether you're a Christian or not, I think it's important to forgive people. Because if you hold a grudge against someone, it will, it will actually be corrosive to your own... Mm -hmm. Uh, emotional well-being mm. I find that sometimes if I feel some, yeah I'm the same I don't notice if somebody's being jealous of me but I it's normally other people that are like oh maybe that could be what it is but sometimes I almost feel very apolog apologetic and I feel like I need to fix this but yeah I think I've come to the conclusion that it's not something that I need to fix it's actually something that they need to deal with and all you can do is be kind and like you said just forgive them for the stuff that they do but um we're coming towards the end i thought maybe we could end on um a positive note and talk about something that you'd love to leave with the, the listeners one piece of advice that you'd say if you had a son who was taking over just imagine taking over your company what piece of advice would you leave him i think the there, there is there is so much, but perhaps we'll say this, mm -hmm. that whatever the circumstances that you, uh, you may be facing in your situation, uh, two things really. One is that this thing will pass, however problematic, however difficult, and that's probably very good for the circumstances we're in at yeah. the moment. Yeah. And the second, because I think the two are together, is that the best is yet to come. Yeah. In other words, you live with your life, your glass half full rather than half empty. And that you say to yourself, this thing will pass and the best is yet to come. And it's that, that light ahead of you that will continue to draw you forward, whatever the circumstances, however dark the situation may seem, however threatening or foreboding. And that will give you the hope and the energy as you go to bed at night and as you get up in the morning. The best is yet to come. Thank you so much for listening in. Would love it if you could share this podcast with anybody that needs to hear it. If you'd like to connect with us, do find us on www.kingdomlifecoach.co.uk. If you've got any questions, do email us on info at kingdomlifecoaching.co.uk. So we'll catch you in the next episode and always remember that you are the salt. Thank you.